Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Can you dig it? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by The Dispatch and thedispatch.com. Uh, come to thedispatch.com to sign up for our free stuff, as well as become a paid member of the community and possibly find out what the Shanshu prophecy really says. Um, Today's episode is brought to us by our friends at Donors Trust. More about them in a little bit. Uh, so uh, today we have a treat. We have an old friend of mine, the guy who was uh, the our, our sort of ringer coach when Peter Rodman and I went off to Oxford about 15 years ago to debate um, uh, at the Oxford Political Union, and it was of, of immense help. And he was also sort of a former uh, colleague or comrade in arms of mine in my NR days. And uh, he's come out with a new book that uh, I, I highly recommend, The Socialist Temptation. And his name is Ian Murray. Ian, welcome to the Remnant Podcast. It's a shame we haven't had you on sooner. Well, it's a delight to be here. That's uh, something else crossed off my bucket list. <laughs> um, and speaking of bucket lists, just so so listeners i think everyone knows at this point that we do these things we're doing these things by zoom and zencaster and this kind of stuff and so because we don't go into the studio which i miss um and uh so we see each other when we're doing this over the interwebs but this is uh the first time when we've had a guest whose background for the zoom meeting was the interior of a tardis from doctor who it's a uh, it's very impressive. Um, and when I first saw you, I was just like, oh, my God, is that actually his basement? Because that that is nerdery of the next level. But I assume you paid for this set. This is just a digital backdrop, right? This is not actually your TARDIS. Well, yes. Th- th- <laughs> thanks thanks to the BBC's generosity, they have uh, th- they've donated a huge number of Zoom backgrounds, which you can find somewhere on the BBC website. Uh, but I do have a friend who actually did build uh, – not just a, a TARDIS platform, but uh, but a Dalek in his basement. Uh, so he has, he has both sides covered. Wow, that's very cool. Um, I kind of always wanted to get. I remember. The, I mean, I was never a huge Doctor Who guy, but I remember watching it when I was a kid, and I remember the K nine robot. 
uh, which was their sort of fake dog. Um, I always kind of wanted to get myself one of those. Um, all right. So let's just, let's sort of dive right in. Uh, I've been going through the book uh, full disclosure. I haven't finished it yet. It was waiting for me when I got back from, uh, my adventures out West and I've just been digging out, but, um, fortunately it's eminently readable. And, uh, so you can sort of dance around looking up stuff. Um, and it's also, I think very, it's, it's very useful as an introduction to just the whole idea of socialism because it gets so confusing and so terminologically weedy so quickly. So why don't we just sort of start there? How would you define socialism? And maybe we'll run through some of the other sort of variants of it as well. Uh, well, well, that's a multi-trillion dollar question now, of course. Uh, what is socialism? And you know, how I define it may well be different from how uh, the Democratic Socialists of America, how AOC, how Bernie Sanders define it. Uh, I would define socialism as popular control of the means of production, distribution, and exchange. That's, in many ways, the classic formulation. Uh, however, these days, uh, w when you ask democratic socialists what they mean by socialism, or, or ask young people who are attracted to socialism what they mean by socialism, they generally mean something like uh, a very, very large welfare state. At least that's what they say they mean. Uh, but then when you look at the policies that, uh, that people like AOC and Bernie Sanders are, are pushing, uh, it's very much uh, the traditional socialism of popular control, uh, either by ownership or by uh, very tight regulation of the means of production, uh, distribution, and exchange. So the, the, there's, there's a certain uh, rhetorical slipperiness uh, going on there, even when it comes to the definition of socialism. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, I, I think we should clarify some of this stuff. I mean, there is a difference between communist, I mean, maybe not in the bedrock assumptions, maybe not in some economic fallacies that they've all derived from, but it just as a matter of conversational common sense, there's a difference between communism, socialism, social democracy, market socialism, even state capitalism and all these kinds of things. Um, uh, they insist that they're for social democracy, right? So why don't, why don't you yeah. sort of explain what that is? Well, you know, the, 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 the original socialism of, uh, of, of Marx and Engels was revolutionary socialism. And, you know, the, 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 the idea was that the only way you could assert this popular control was through revolution, and that revolution was inevitable. Uh, you know, it was cast very much in, in the language of uh, a, a, a violent class struggle. Uh, then there became democratic socialism, the idea that, well, you don't have to have a revolution. You can actually just uh, uh, achieve socialism through success at the ballot box. Uh, and that's what happened in most of Western Europe in the uh, in, after the Second World War. Uh, but then a lot of people realized in Western Europe that perhaps having this ridiculously tight control over and public ownership over every aspect of the economy was actually leading to people getting uh, getting poorer when what they wanted to do was make people wealthier. So uh, there was a sort of shift in uh, in a lot of Europe towards social democracy, uh, whereby you have this large welfare state paid for by uh, a free market capitalist base uh, with you know, quite high tax rates. So that's, uh, th th that's where most of Western Europe ended up, uh, as, as a social democracy. Then there are other variants. You, know, you mentioned uh, 
state capitalism, you know, which is you know essentially what China's uh, turned into, uh, where where the, um, the 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 state has a compelling interest in all the private industry. Uh, that's actually not too far off from uh, where fascism was, where you know where, where the state actually organised the cartels and uh, destroyed small business, but uh, promoted large business. You know, it's really pretty similar to where we are with China at the moment. So, you know, so, so I think those are the four main forms of, uh, of socialism that we, that we see around the world today. Yeah, I, the, the, you sort of alluded to an important distinction that I think is lost in a lot of people. Um, it seems to me that there, there are probably plenty of reasons. Actually, I have theories about why people are attracted to socialism that I think you at least have some sympathy for. But two of the primary motivating fashions, motivating passions for why people get attracted to socialism are um, concern with equality or concern with poverty. And it seems to me that one of the reasons why it's flipped to equality for the large part is because capitalism has actually won the argument about poverty. And so now the problem isn't that you actually have objectively you know, truly poor, extreme poor people, not counting homeless people in the United States, you have subjectively poor people. You have poor people that measured against how rich everyone else is are, you know, despairingly poor. And so the idea of income inequality becomes more important because that, 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 that chasm between the haves and the haves nots, though on a sliding scale, I mean, like my point is, there are poor people in this country who qualify as poor and that we should be concerned about their poverty who still have more material resources than some villages in India, right? And so it has less to do with the ability to feed yourself or provide, find shelter for yourself and more to do with the fact that, it's, that there's just, there seems to be this undemocratic small d divergence in, in, in wealth and status. And so many of the people who talk about socialism these days it's really fascinating once you start listening for it. They talk less about bringing people up and more about tearing people down, right? They want to make the billionaires poorer, but the very rarely do they actually talk about making the poor people richer. Well, that, that was exactly the point that Margaret Thatcher made in her uh, uh, farewell speech in the House of Commons back in, back in 1990, that, uh, that, 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 uh, that the Labour Party was all about, uh, uh, didn't, it, it didn't matter to the Labour Party if people were uh, uh, at the lowest end had been raised up. Uh, if the uh, if, if the, the people on the higher end uh, had also raised up, they were uh, more concerned with tearing down that top end than they were at the, at the bottom end. So this idea has 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 a long pedigree. Yeah, one of the things that uh, my colleague Ryan Young and I pointed out in a uh, couple of studies in uh, uh, around 2015, when, uh, when when Thomas Piketty was uh, uh, had just made his huge splash, is that the big question missing from the inequality debate is how are the poor actually doing? You never hear this, right. and the answer to that is because, as you say, the poor have been doing exceptionally well, not just in America. But around the world, you know, compared to their uh, the, the, the historical performance, you know, there's a, a good argument that most people in America 
are richer uh, when you take everything into account than John D. Rockefeller was. Mm-hmm. And that's a, an astonishing change. Yeah, no, I think the median income in the United States puts something like the vast majority of Americans are in the global 1% um, yep. in terms of something like that, right? You know, and it's like, if you, yep. if you believe in the logic of the 1% and you don't believe in borders, right? And you believe in universal humanity and all that, then why shouldn't the rest of the world tear down our 1%? You know, I mean, there's, there's, there are all sorts of logical slippery slopes and a lot of this kind of stuff. But let's, let's get back to what is, uh, what is the socialist temptation? And, uh, why is it so tempting? Well, my argument is is based on uh, something that I learned at the at the feet of the great Fred Smith, who was uh, the founder of the Competitive Enterprise Institute, and he always pointed out that uh, underneath uh, our politics are values, and that it's those values with and which in many ways are, are determined by our attitudes to risk. Uh, it's those values that are fundamental uh, to politics. Socialism has done a very good job of talking at that level of values. It, uh, there are three fundamental values really in, in, in American politics, according to the field of cultural co- cognition that the Fred described to. Uh, the one is the egalitarians. We've already talked a, a, a little bit about them. You know, for them, fairness is the most fundamental value. Uh, then there are the, the, the the libertarians, for want of a better word, for whom freedom is most uh, fundamental value. And socialism talks uh, a good game when it comes to freedom. They say you don't have freedom unless you have agency. And you can only have agency if the state provides you with, uh, uh, with the wherewithal to have that agency. Uh, and indeed, you know, go back to the Communist Manifesto. It said, workers of the world unite, you have nothing to lose but your chains. Right. Socialism talks the language of freedom, which I think uh, uh, we often forget. And finally, socialism also talks the value of community. So, uh, in fact, you know, the, the word socialism derives from uh, uh, for, 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 from the Latin word for, for ally. Uh, you know, so socialism is all about uh, getting people together to pool uh, pool resources uh, for the benefit of the community. And Indeed, socialists, uh, uh, democratic socialists, often talk about uh, how wonderful it was. They, they, they have a sort of uh, a conservatism about them when they talk about how wonderful it was in the 1950s when uh, there were very high tax rates and uh, union jobs meant that uh, most people had a career for life. Uh, that really helped uh, the community, and we've seen capitalism tear that down. So socialism speaks a very good job of, uh, in, in, when it talks of that value as well. Meanwhile, those of us who support the free enterprise system, uh, we tend to talk about uh, about history and about uh, economics and about aggregate GDP and all sorts of things, and we're not talking at that values level. And I think that's what's allowed socialism to slip back into uh, the conversation. Uh, socialism talks uh, about values, which allows people to say, "Oh well." America's not perfect. We uh, uh, we need solutions, and socialism says, "Here are those. Uh, here are some easy solutions that speak to your values." Um, no, I, I think this is a hugely important point, um, and I want to get sort of do a deeper dive on this because uh, 
one of the things I have the hardest time explaining to fellow conservatives, particularly of a cranky libertarianish bent of a certain age, um, is that they'll tell me something I already know, something you already know, you've written at book length about, that socialism doesn't work as an economic theory. I completely agree, it doesn't. Um, depending on what, again, what you mean by socialism. But what they don't get is that for a lot of people, socialism is not primarily an economic theory. It is this weird bundle of values and preconceptions about everyone being in it together. Um, and this is one of the reasons why it's sort of a running joke among champions of socialism to say they can't define it. And so I want to, I want to, and I don't mean to trigger you by quoting both Sidney Webb and Tony Blair, but um, <laughs> I think it's worth sort of to illustrate the point. And as you know, um, the British Labor Party used to have this thing called Clause 4. And uh, as part of the, liberal, the British Liberal Party's constitution, and it read in part, to secure, to secure for the workers by hand or by brain the full fruits of their industry and the most equitable distribution thereof that may be possible upon the basis of the common ownership of the means of production, distribution, and exchange, and the best obtainable system of popular administration and control of each industry or service. And then in 1995, at the urging of Tony Blair after a very bitter struggle, um, the Labor Party rewrote it to say the Labor Party is a democratic socialist party. It believes that by the strength of our common endeavor, we can achieve more that we achieve alone so as to create for each of us the means to realize our true potential and for all of us as a community in which power, wealth, and opportunity are in the hands of the many, not the few. And Blair explained this switch at the party convention by saying, socialism for me was never about nationalization or the power of the state, not just about economics or even politics. It is a moral purpose to life, a set of values, a belief in society, in cooperation, in achieving together what we cannot achieve alone. It is how I try to live my life, how you try to live yours. The simple truths, I am worth no more than anyone else. I am my brother's keeper. I will not walk by, by on the other side. We are not simply people in isolation from one another, face to face with eternity, but members of the same family, same community, same human race. This is my socialism. And the irony of all our long years in opposition is that those values are shared by the vast majority of the British people. He then went on to say that while he doesn't believe in socialism, he believes in social-ism. The reason why I bring it up is I think it's really that Blair, for all our criticisms of him, captured something that I think was essentially right, is that socialism appeals to people almost primarily as particularly in this day and age, not capitalism. Like, if this is capitalism, I don't like it. I want something else where I feel more valued and part of something larger. And to me, that's the real temptation and why it's never going to go away is because socialism, you can gussy it up with all sorts of economic stuff. It's really this sort of tribal desire for communitarianism, for belonging, for, you know, if we all work our hardest and try our best, we can make this the best yearbook ever, right? I mean, it's that kind of feeling that they want. Um, and you get into some of that in the book. But anyway, what, what, what did you think of the Blair stuff at the time? And 
Um, and, uh, and do you think he was basically right? Uh, two things. The first is, you know, I, I'd, I'd forgotten that speech, but you're very right to, to, to draw attention to it. The, th the thing that always struck me about that speech was how Christian it was, mm -hmm. uh, in, in, in a way that um, in a way that no leader of uh, the uh, of the, the Labour Party in, in, in Britain since, certainly not Jeremy Corbyn, or uh, indeed, for that matter, the, uh, the Democratic Socialists of America, that they wouldn't use language like the Good Samaritan. Right. Uh, so, so, so I think you know, already that's, uh, that, 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 that's, uh, uh, that, that era has gone. But the, the most uh, important thing about, I, I think about it was that uh, the, the, the way Blair's government actually behaved uh, was, yes, they had rejected common ownership. And they uh, they even moved to uh, to start privatizing uh, uh, the Royal Mail, uh, the the, uh, you know, the the British equivalent of the U.S. Postal Service uh, in in 2008, before uh, just before uh, Blair stepped down, I think. Uh, they, yeah, they rejected common ownership, but they replaced that with a model of uh, very tight bureaucratic uh, control over the economy. Mm. So. Uh, and, and the great genius of that was that uh, if something went wrong owing to, uh, to to regulation, they could claim that it oh well it was the industry's fault they should have done better. Whereas uh, whereas under the old system, uh, when your train didn't arrive in the morning, you blamed the minister of transport. Right. Uh, now you blamed uh, the, the, the the private services whose uh, whose services were crippled by uh, by fair regulation and uh, and and so on. So so Blair's government, while it had theoretically moved on from uh, from the Socialist Party of the past, actually behaved in a lot of ways uh, very like just a more sophisticated uh, Wilsonian party from the sixties. And you mean Wilsonian, British Wilsonian, not, not... Yes, yes, sorry, Harold Wilson, yes, uh, the man not, with the pipe. Yes. Yeah. Um, this, uh, the other Wilson is, yeah. <laughs> is, is a problematic figure in history and in on this podcast. So, so what do you do about the fact if, as... As I, as I mentioned before, that, you know, particularly among young people, the appeal of socialism isn't a, doesn't derive from a close study of the labor theory of value or anything like that, but rather is this sort of more mushy headed, and I don't mean that necessarily as pejoratively as it sounds, but sort of communitarian, um, plus a certain amount of just exerting their own naked economic self-interest, which they think they can better achieve through an increased welfare state. Um, uh, how do you combat that? How do you persuade young people that, you know, that while their values are not necessarily wrong, they're just not thinking through how they're applying them or how they're, how they want to fulfill them. That's a very good question. I, I think uh, one of the things we can do is actually take a leaf out of the Marxist books, the, the, the Marxist own book, which is, it, it, they often used to talk about heightening the contradictions, heighten the contradictions of capitalism. 
the thing about socialism is that it's full of contradictions. And I, sure. I outline a lot of these in my book. And you know, for, for example, um, democratic socialists claim to be about democracy. That's their number one principle. Just worth, all we're talking about is the extension of democracy. Uh, how can you c complain about uh, the, 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 the people uh, having oversight over, uh, over the economy? Yeah. Okay, let's take that as read. Then why is it that uh, socialism always devolves into bureaucracy? That's uh, it's quite simple because the people cannot possibly uh, uh, oversee every aspect of, of the economy. So there has to be a delegation of power to, uh, to a, a, a new class of people who are acting on behalf of the people at large. That class, whether you call them bureaucrats, apparatchiks, commissars, they always uh, start to behave like a new ruling class. Uh, this is the great allegory of Animal Farm. The, uh, you know, the, the pigs take on that duty uh, for, the, uh, for the, the animals uh, and uh, end up walking on their hind legs and changing the slogan, uh, the slogan from all animals are equal to some, all animals are equal to some are more equal than others. De uh, democratic socialism always collapses uh, at best into bureaucracy and at worst into an administrative tyranny. And so that's the sort of contradiction that you can uh, that, 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 that you can uh, draw to the attention of somebody who is uh, who is tempted by socialism. It, it, it's it's a process of of thinking through what the rhetoric actually means. Um. So let's talk about that for a second, because uh, you mentioned Fred Smith earlier, and. Um, He's actually the guy who um, I heard talk about Joseph Schumpeter's Capitalism, Socialism, Democracy, I don't know, 10, 12 years ago, and set me on this little uh, cheese hunt through an intellectual maze about all of it. And, uh, and he, was, he was the one who first pointed out to me that Schumpeter predicted the demise of capitalism. Um, because of this very phenomenon that you're talking about, which I actually write a lot about in, in my most recent book, um, this rise of the new class, which is, um, a, you know, Schumpeter, I mean, I, I, I talk about this a lot on the podcast, so I don't want to repeat all of it, but Schumpeter has this, this mode of analysis that he borrows from Nietzsche about how through uh, sort of culture war, uh, resentment, um, the children of the wealthy, essentially, um, the children of the bourgeois use the one tools that they, the one tool that they have at their hands, which is communication, words, images, all the rest, um, to redefine what is good and what is evil in ways that redound to their own benefit. And, um, lots of people have used this process of or this argument about the new class lots of people on our side of the ledger um if you've never read it uh josh moravchik uh i'm trying to remember i'm trying to see what the date is and i printed out right before we came in here in 1981 wrote this wonderful piece for the world affairs institute um uh theories of the new class where it's just basically like a field guide to all of the 
different theoreticians of new class analysis. Um, but, and there are a lot of different schools of it, but the basic gist is what you're talking about is that basically you create in, a, in effect a secular uh, aristocracy of planners, of intellectuals who take what was great about liberal democratic capitalism and redefine it as evil. The 1619 Project does this. I mean, the cultural Marxists do this. The Hollywood does this. This is not like hard to find examples of it. Um, but Schumpeter basically predicts that it is inevitable. It's an inevitable problem that will come with capitalism as it throws off more and more intellectuals than it can absorb. And those intellectuals then start to game the system for their own benefit. And so while I agree with you that socialism always creates apparatchiks and, and a new class, um, there's an argument that all systems do, and including capitalism. What do you say about that? Do you agree with that? Is, you know, what do you do about it? Well, I, I, I think this is where uh, I'm going to resort to quoting my, my own mate, Dan Hannon, uh, who uh, believes that, uh, that, that um, the great thing about capitalism is that uh, the innovators are always one or two steps ahead of the new class, the regulators, who who will try and uh, 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 try try to stop them. So I think the capitalism does have uh, an inbuilt escape valve as long as you allow innovation. Uh, innovation will will, will disintermediate uh, uh, some of some of the the, the bureaucrats will make uh, uh, the. Um, uh, the, the, the children of the uh, of, of, of the wealthy who have uh, turned to another way, uh, the, the, their pet projects uh, will they will dissipate uh, thanks to uh, thanks to innovation. Um, the question is, uh, can the, that class uh, that new class just close off the uh, the engine of innovation? Uh, and I worry that we are beginning to. Um, uh, it's uh, it, it it may be that you know, if you look at uh, the, the the figures for dynamism and so on, it, you know, the, the creation of of new firms, uh, it, it it may be that that that's beginning to to uh, to, uh, to that 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 escape valve is beginning to be shut off. Mm -hmm. uh, one thing I'm extremely worried about, and this is something we see that, that we come from the right, as the coming from the right as well, is that antitrust enforcement um, may, uh, in, in an effort to promote uh, smaller firms, may actually and, and innovative firms may actually uh, uh, may actually sort of cut off that that that, that valve as well. Uh, Clayton Christensen, the, uh, the, the late uh, Harvard professor, uh, talked about the innovator's dilemma, uh, mm -hmm. which is that if you're uh, uh, in, in R&D at a, at, at a big firm, you know that your, the, 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 the norms and beliefs and uh, uh, corporate the culture that you have will, will, will stop uh, a certain amount of, uh, of, uh, of innovation happening. So you look outside the firm, and then you you, f you find a source of innovation outside the firm, and you buy it. Uh, you know, and, and this is how uh, Facebook and the other big tech giants uh, have, uh, have have performed uh, uh, for the last uh, decade or so. Uh, 
but when you look at it, look at it from the art seems as if it's it, as if it's a bad thing. But when you look at it from the entrepreneur's point of view, uh, what, what do you do with your great idea? Uh, do you build it, try to build it up to become the next Facebook? Well, that involves things like uh, uh, going through uh, the IPO process, going through horrible financial regulation. You, you, you have to be, uh, you, you have to deal with a huge amount of administrative law, or do you just get it to a certain size, then then sell out and move on to the next thing? What we what we might be say, is saying with, uh, with with the new hipster antitrust and its equivalent on the right is saying no. That process can't happen anymore. That's going to dissuade a huge amount of innovation. Mm-hmm. So I think that's an example of, 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 of what's what's happening at the, at the moment. That the, that that we are. It's almost as if uh, we are, we are seeking out sources of innovation and trying to uh, trying to crush them out. Uh, and if that happens, then Dan will be proved wrong. And uh, the the innovators will be only one step ahead of the, the of the regulators, and that means they'll probably get caught. Yeah, I'm I'm a I'm a huge fan of of Dan, and he's a friend of this podcast and all that. Um, I would phrase it sort of slightly differently because I don't think it's true that the innovators are always one or two steps ahead. I think that um, enough innovators are a couple yeah, steps yeah, ahead right. because. I think both of us could sit here and you in particular, since you're a CEI guy and list all sorts of examples of innovators who weren't a couple steps ahead and got rolled over by crushing regulatory stuff. It's just that absolutely uh, not to to use a self-promotional phrase here, but it's almost as if there's just enough of a remnant (laughs) of the innovators (laughs) who, who make it, who then get to plant the seeds. But Lord knows what innovation we've, I mean, this is a very Peter Thiel point, right? Is that the, the innovators, the, the regulators really have done a lot of bad things about curtailing innovation with physical stuff, but they, um, and with medical stuff, but they were too slow to catch up on the digital stuff, which is now why we have this famous disequilibrium where we have lots of apps, but not many jetpacks. Right. And, um, I could. I don't want a lot of regulatory crackdown. I'm not one of these paranoid guys about Section 230 and all that kind of stuff. But I could live with a little less innovation on the digital side for a little while if the price were, in some sort of weird bargain, more innovation on the medical side and on the physical side and on the energy side, where I think we've been much slower, right? I mean, um, but anyway, that's a digression. You're free to respond to. I just wanted to get that out there. Um, all right, so I'm going to pick a fight with you now. And you're probably the wrong person to pick the fight with, but uh, that's your bad luck. Um, in fact, you may not even want to fight me on this. But um, given your definition or your argument about what is attra- what is tempting about socialism, how we both agree that it's not primarily an economic theory. I mean, uh, one of my favorite lines is from... Um, you know, on the on the subject of defining socialism, um, when Irving Howe and Louis Kozer, who were the editors of the Socialist Journal Dissent, were asked to come up with a definition of socialism in 1954, all they could come up with was socialism is the name of our desire. <laughs> um, but uh, be that as may, my point, my, the, the real question is, 
given that it's largely a communitarian thing, it's about social solidarity, um, the economics is in some ways an afterthought. Um, tell me, as a matter of first principles, what the, what the real difference is between nationalism and socialism. Because generations of Marxists and quasi-Marxists and pseudo-Marxists and ersatz Marxists have been arguing that these things are opposites. That's, and if you're looking at international socialism versus nationalism, you can make that argument. But um, there hasn't been an example of a living, breathing, successful international socialist movement for a century. All successful socialist movements, such as it were, have always been nationalistic. Um, so what is, what is the first order difference between socialism and, and, and nationalism? Oh, I, I, th I think the only difference is that uh, nationalism doesn't have to be socialist. But I think socialist is, socialism is always nationalist. Yeah, this this is one of the things I I, I try to point out in the um uh, uh, in, in the book is that for all the all the talk about the international brotherhood of man, uh, socialism has always been hostile to the principle of emigration. They like immigration, but they they really don't like emigration. Yeah, you know, so, so so in the in the Communist Manifesto, Marx and Engels uh, say that any emigre must have all his property confiscated. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right there in, in, in the, the foundational document. But of course, we, we uh, when we look at actual social states in actual operation, they realize that that wasn't enough. That uh, that, that uh, when people leave, they don't just take uh, uh, their, their physical capital with them; they take their human capital with them. Uh, that but that capital is uh, you know a, a, a brain, a pair, and a pair of hands that uh, that, that that can be uh, used to, to 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 better the state. So therefore, we, you know, we, we got to the stage of you know, the, the Berlin Wall and uh, people being shot inches from, the, uh, uh, the, inches from the, the West German border because they could not, simply could not be allowed to leave. You know, the, the whole principle of defection and dissidence and, uh, mm. uh, uh, and, and the rest. That's all, I think, inherent uh, to, to socialism. Uh, yes, the state may grow and the state may become an empire. But it's still uh, a, a, so, so a socialist empire, but it's still uh, nationalist at heart. I, I don't think there's any way of getting around that. Um, so it's, it's an interesting distinction because I've had this argument a lot that that all socialisms are nationalist, but not all nationalisms are socialist. I got to think about that a little bit. Um, um, I at first blush, I think part of my I don't know if it's a disagreement, but it's a, it's a bone of contention that comes to mind is that the problem with that formulation, if there is one, because it's, I, I still, I kind of like it, is that um, there is no limiting principle to the concept of nationalism that can't, that, let me put it this way, when you embrace the logic of nationalism, which has no, um, which, which basically says the, the collective will, the people, the folk, the fatherland, however you want to describe it, um, is the bedrock moral good of the society, is the, is the, is the fundament, right? Um, then there is no principled argument against socialism. Right. Because at the end of the day, 
the central government is the only institution, and particularly the president, but is the only institution in the entire country that can claim to legitimately speak for the entire country. And so therefore it has no, there is no legitimate bulwark against the federal government doing whatever it wants in the name of nationalism and the national will. And so I don't know that it's obvious to me, I'm trying to think of, have there been nationalist governments? I guess Pinochet, right? I mean, I guess there have been nationalist governments where they have moved towards democracy and capitalism rather than away from it. Um, but gosh, I guess they're few and far between, right? Yeah, I, I, I think it is possible to be a national liberal. Uh, uh-huh. you know, I, I think you know, the, essentially Britain in the 19th century was a, a, a national liberal uh, a, a polity. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, 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 um, the, the, the movement of reforms uh, and uh, the, you know the, the essentially the triumph of the Liberal Party uh, mm-hmm. in the uh, in, in the middle of the uh, of, of the nineteenth century was very much tied to uh, to, to, to to nationalism. The uh, you know the probably the the greatest nationalist prime minister of Britain was uh, Lord Palmerston, who was a liberal. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I, I, so I think it, it is possible. I think it's difficult. One other thing that that uh, is that you know during that same time period is that liberalism uh, embraced nationalism in the uh, breakup of empires mm-hmm. around uh, 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 around Europe. So you know, I, uh, so, so nationalism and liberalism have actually been uh, been tied together uh, at, at, at some point. Whether it's going to be possible these days uh, is uh, a, another question. You know, I I had hoped that uh, the the Brexit would. Uh, uh, produce a sort of uh, uh, initially nationalist liberal uh, Britain that would then uh, uh, then realise that it, it it needed to get together with uh, uh, with its co- colleagues in the Anglosphere. Uh, I, I don't think that that is actually what's happening at the moment. I think mm-hmm. you know if you just if you look at the policies that Boris Johnson's government's pursuing, uh, that 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 they're not. Uh, they they turned away from free markets almost as much as well more so I think than uh, than, than parts of the administration here. So uh, it, it's uh, it, I'm not sure whether it's possible under the current circumstances to be a nationalist liberal. But yeah, no, the, it's I think it has point. been in I, the past. Yeah, no, I, I think it seems to me that maybe one one way in which it is possible or was possible in the past is when there was a large amount of there's a national consensus about what it means to be a member of the nationality, right? I mean, like yeah. what it, we, and, and part of the problem, not to invoke uh, Daniel Hananigan, but is that, I'm sorry, the Brits are just weird, right? You know, and yes. I mean, as a historical matter, they're weird and he gets into it. Absolutely. He's got a great Whiggish history of their weirdness. I mean, he doesn't call them weird, but they're yep. weird, you know, and if, if literally yeah, well, yeah. I mean, like the, <laughs> the if liberal democratic capitalism were the natural way for social formation, we wouldn't have waited until basically the sixteen late sixteen hundreds, early seventeen hundreds for it to happen on this one island backwater. Again, no offense, um, but there was just this weird confluence of events, partly to do with you know regime change from Holland um, <laughs> that uh, that made it possible and. Uh, 
and so the fact that the Brits could manage to square these circles in ways, and then for a while Americans too, um, shouldn't be that surprising. But it's but there is now in America, as you know, I mean, there's very little consensus about what it means to be an American. Yep. And in fact, there's a lot of animosity towards the idea of creating Americans. Assimilation is now a bad word. And I think that one of the reasons why socialism is more popular is it is a way to create a new definition of social solidarity that isn't based upon any of our history or our cultures or traditional notions of patriotism. Instead, it's these abstract social justice theories that people can claim loyalty to that really have nothing to do with being an American. They have to do with, you know, being a green consumer and driving, you know, a Subaru that runs on recycled, you know, cooking oil or something. Well, yes, exactly. I mean, I, I think the, 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 on, on, on weirdness, I, I think in, in Britain, we would say, uh, I'm unusual, you're eccentric, he's weird. <laughs> but uh, the, um, I, I, I think that that weirdness, that uh, eccentricity, if you will, uh, was was actually you know, tied in very closely to uh, a set of institutions and customs that had uh, grown up uh, uh, during the Middle Ages and th uh, th through the, uh, uh, the the Tudor period and the Reformation and uh, the the wars of war of religion in the in in the mid seventeenth century. So it was a very uh, distinct set of institutions uh, and, and customs, but we needed those institutions and customs to be a national liberal polity. Mm -hmm. I think you're, you're very right to point out that that that, uh, that, that, that modern socialism is all about destroying institutions and customs. Uh, so, so, so if you if you take away that that, that basis, we'll never have uh, a. Uh, a the, the right set of circumstances for for, for a national liberal, uh, uh, a na na national liberal polity again. So, I mean, since you bring up the importance of institutions and the um, and their crucial role in sort of shaping sort of political economy in a, in a healthy direction and keeping a sense of cultural identity alive, um, I think it's really important to talk about donors' trust. Giving USA recently reported that Americans increased their charitable giving last year. Are you among the millions of Americans wanting to grow your charitable impact, but recognize that your time is limited? With a donor-advised fund at Donors Trust, you spend less time on administration and more time having an impact for your principles and values. A donor-advised fund is like your own charitable savings account. With a fund, you can manage your charitable giving in a way that's smart, tax advantage, and private. Donors Trust is unique, working with donors at all levels who share a commitment to the freedoms and principles that make America great. Donors Trust philanthropic advisors can help you sharpen your giving, discover new groups, and define your charitable legacy. Join their community of liberty-minded donors at Donors Trust to see how a donor-advised fund could benefit your giving. Go to donorstrust.org slash dingo for their six reasons to use a donor-advised fund. That's Donors Trust, D-O-N-O-R-S-T-R-U-S-T dot org slash dingo to sign up and to check out their, their uh, six reasons to use a donor-advised fund. We thank Donors Trust for sponsoring today's episode of The Remnant.
So all right, since I, I utterly failed to pick a fight with you on the first thing, and um, and instead you left me having to rethink some of my position, for which I will punish you later. Um, I want to try something else on. I look you. forward to it. <laughs> um, uh, so, as you know, I wrote this book called Liberal Fascism, right? And um, one of the and you mentioned fascist economics as state capitalism earlier. I think. That's right. I certainly think a lot of academics would agree with you that what they had was state capitalism. I think there are also a lot of students of Nazi Germany in particular, um, um, but also, I guess, Mussolini, fascist Italy, not Spain, which is just a different thing. And there are a lot of people who don't even think it was fascist. Um, um, that the internal logic of the ideology of Nazism and of Italian fascism would eventually left to its own devices inexorably led to something that looks a lot more like you know venezuela econo venezuelan economics than singapore economics or or the state capitalism we see in china and but even if that's not the case there's there's a school of thought out there that actually there's this guy howard Wiarda, who wrote i'm going to butcher the name of it but um he calls it it was something like uh, corporatism, the third great ism. Um, and his basic argument is that a lot of the stuff that we call both capitalism and socialism uh, in any mixed economy is really some variant of corporatism. And I'm not, I don't want to butcher his, the nuances of his argument, but that was sort of my takeaway from it. And, um, and I think there's a lot of truth there, right? I mean, you look at the, I mean, so corporatism for listeners who don't know, is not um, ruled by corporations. It is, which is what RFK Jr. always says. It is this medieval, not medieval, it's this uh, 19th century Catholic social thought school of economics that wants to find a middle way between capitalism and socialism or capitalism and communism that basically has all the stakeholders around the table and all the big players, unions, um, religious institutions, educational institutions, business institutions, um, the, the whole scope of like the, the, the and political institutions all sitting around the table making the decisions for all the little people. And it seems to me that like a big part of your day job is to fight corporatism, not socialism, you know, um, and all of that. Uh, first of all, do you see it? I mean, what is this distinction in your mind between corporatism and socialism? And why is it so difficult for people, including on the right? to talk about corporatism, which in some ways is a much bigger or more present threat to capitalism than, than socialism is because we have corporatism right now. We have the big players sort of uh, gaming the system right now. Um, and socialism is sort of the far enemy in some ways. Um, anyway, what do you think of all that? Yeah, I, I think this is a, an extremely important point. Uh, you know, the, the, what, one of the things that I, I point out in the socialist temptation is that uh, uh, America has had two waves of socialism light in the progressive era and, and the New Deal, and both of those uh, uh, established uh, corporatism, uh, 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 one to a greater extent than, than the other. You know, the, the progressive era gave us. Uh, the alphabet soup of agencies and the uh, uh, the, the the idea that uh, you as a, a, a business owner are not responsible only to your uh, uh, to your consumer, 
uh, but you were also responsible to uh, s some bureaucratic oversight. Uh, then we uh, then we had the the, the, the New Deal. Uh, those agencies multiplied. Uh, uh, we had the, the the National Labor Relations Act saying that, uh, that that you are also responsible to to your employee, and the government's going to, uh, going to, uh, to 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 look at that. Uh, 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 very uh, with a sort of level of strict scrutiny about how you are uh, how you are dealing with, uh, with 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 your workers. So so corporatism got established in those two uh, uh, in in, the, in those two eras. But nevertheless, uh, businesses were still um, generally speaking uh, strongly pro capitalist. Uh, you know, as, as uh, late as Ronald Reagan's time. One thing that I, I, I think we've seen over the last uh, couple of decades is you know, through the, the massive growth of regulation that my colleague Wayne Cruz uh, documents every year in his uh, annual snapshot of the regulatory state called 10,000 Commandments, uh, which I, I, I commend to everyone, um, is, is a process of, of getting those so-called stakeholders into the uh, into the corporation uh, 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 more and more and more. So, uh, so so in the end, you have uh, uh, corporations who are much more concerned about what the uh, uh, what the uh, what the stake stakeholders are saying than uh, than the con than what the consumer is saying, which mm -hmm. has led to the point where now we're seeing. Uh, Corporations actively insulting a large uh, proportion of their consumer base. Uh, you know, I, I point out in the books that that that, that uh, uh, businesses uh, relate to values just as uh, politicians do. So, you know, w w when you see uh, a large uh, American flag on the on the highway uh, the, the, from a, a, an auto dealer, then that auto dealer is talking to uh, to, to, to Americans who value uh tradition and uh the, the american way, way of life so th 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 they're communicating at, at a values level uh what we see now is that you know especially with the phenomenon of woke corporations uh those are talking the value of equality to their consumers but are at the same time actively insulting uh their, their consumers who uh you know, who, who believe in community and tradition uh, and the like. This may be a commercial uh, decision, uh, in which case, all power to them. Uh, you know, I generally don't think that insulting half your customer base is, is, is a good business idea, but they might be able to make it work. But, uh, but the, 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 the signaling is not just to, to, to the customer, it's also to, to the stakeholders uh, who have taken such a dominant position in American corporate life. So uh, you, you've now got to the stage where one of the, the great bulwarks of socialism, uh, one of the great bulwarks against socialism, uh, you know, American private industry uh, has been, uh, well, not totally uh, suborned, uh, has uh, been subverted to, to a large extent. Yeah, no, it's kind of fascinating. I don't think I'm speaking too far out of school. I mean, the events are supposed to be off the record and all that. But I don't know, about 10 years ago, I went to a Koch brother, my first Koch brothers, that big donor, giant donor conference thing. And uh, one of the most striking things to me was 
how, while there were clearly a lot of rich people there, and I was not one of them, um, <laughs> I, I brought down the average income considerably. Um, very, very few heads of publicly held Fortune 500 companies, right? I and mean, that's one of the weird things. I think the left does not grasp this at all, that, or maybe those really smart ones understand it better than both of us, but the, the, the average liberal thinks, oh, just big business is right wing, which has always been one of my big peeves. It was one of the reasons I originally wanted to write liberal fascism was this myth that the, that the, that big business was right wing. And I, I would push back on you a little bit about the idea that it's a bulwark for capitalism. Some big business, yes, some big business, no. Um, you know, U.S. Steel lobbied the government for socialization of the steel industry in what, like 1912? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, but uh, the the real champions of free enterprise, first of all, are, are small and mid-sized businesses, which are privately owned. And the few, the few big, can't call them, I, I guess you could still call them corporate, but the big corporate behemoths that aren't publicly held, right? I mean, so the, that's one of the reasons the Koch brothers can get away with everything that they do like them or hate them, that's not my point, is just simply that they own their own company. And when you are answerable to shareholders, you're also answerable to all of the sort of new class trial lawyers, social justice campaigns, all the rest. And um, that tends to make those big publicly held companies either risk averse or cowardly, but almost never brave about, you know, fighting for their own interests in terms of capitalism and free markets. Um, so the, so, I, but, so, if, have you ever read Douglas North's stuff about um, violence and social orders and where modernity comes from and all of that? No, no I have not, but uh, yeah. I, I should. So, uh, oh, I just, I will be very clear. Uh, brilliant guy, super smart, arguably one of the worst writers of the in the English language I have ever encountered. Um, worse, than, worse than Hayek? Worse, oh, by far, worse than Hayek. Like, oh my there's god, some, <laughs> there's some Hayek. I mean, admittedly, there's some Hayek yep. that you feel like they put it in the translation from German machine thirty seconds too short, and that if it just stayed yep. in the microwave a little longer, you could read it fine. Yes, but, exactly. Uh, this is so abstruse, but violence is social orders. One of the points he makes is that, um, you know, he's sort of a champion of institutional economics. And one of the points he makes is that, yep. um, that he, he refers to sort of natural states. These are states that comport with human nature that have a sort of a, they've, they're like water finding its level. They can, they can last a very long time as um uh as a sort of uh as as a regime and um and part of his argument is that monarchies are like this that and that corporatist systems are essentially like this and there's just not a lot of evidence in about whether um liberal democratic capitalism is like this and so the, the i guess the part of the question is is if corporatism has such staying power, um, don't you think that the, the, that that in some ways is a greater threat to 
the capitalist order because it just in first of all it's well established in in our political economy already and second of all it feels much more natural to a lot of people oh yeah of course we want everyone to have a seat at the table you know that's how obamacare was done as they said you know they told all these people you're either at the table or on the menu that's how monarchs used to run things that is as a steady state form of political economy um and yet we don't, very few conservatives really have any idea how to talk about it. Very few libertarians have any idea how to talk about it. And we do a little boilerplate about picking winners and losers and crony capitalism and all the rest. But that's, that's, that's more like corruption fighting than actually systemic reform. Um, and it just seems to me that you guys at CEI, that's, this is your bread and butter. And um, I'm just kind of curious what you think about it as, as, as the comparative threats between corporatism and, and socialism. Well, I, I, I think that uh, one of them is co-opting the other. I, I think so, socialism is co-opting uh, co corporatism in a, in a way that we haven't uh, haven't seen uh, in it, at, at least since the 1930s. Uh, I, I, I think one of the important points to remember is that uh, even large corporations don't actually have that long uh, a shelf life, at least right. not in the dominant form that that, that 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 we we think of them as uh, you, know, uh, you know just look at the 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 dow from uh, for 50 years ago and i think something like half the uh, half the corporations don't exist any longer you know, exxon has just left the the dow for the first time in in 92 years you know exxon's not going uh, not go, really going anywhere uh, for, 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 uh, at least until the green new deal gets established but but uh, you know the the um uh, the, the, the corporations aren't uh, a, a lasting vehicle uh, for, uh, uh, for, uh, for for this sort of thing unless they get institutionalized, and 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 this is my big right. worry in in the day job that uh, the, the 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 regulation we're we're seeing at, at the moment and the regulation the big companies are lobbying for is there to try to destroy uh, upstart competitors and to uh, uh, and and to uh, uh, cement uh, uh, positions that you know were relatively fragile, say even five years ago. Yeah, you know, so, so uh, you know, it, it, it's only a decade since uh, people were talking about uh, needing to nationalise MySpace because it, 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 it was so dominant. <laughs> now, now Facebook is. Uh, you know, uh, I, I don't want to use the term about dominant because that uh, that has a specific meaning in antitrust law. But uh, Facebook is very big, uh, but yeah, you know, what we've seen with, for instance, uh, the EU's uh, GDPR regulation over there, which was meant to try and uh, uh, curb the su uh, supposed abuses of companies like Facebook, we've just seen them grow larger because the uh, the, the regulations have just killed off any innovation in uh, amongst uh, European uh, digital uh, uh, di digital tech at all. So. Uh, you know, so, so the use of regulation to try to, to entrench uh, a, a, a company, I think, is 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 a big company, is, is very much recognised and is very much a tool of the um, of, of, of the of, of the corporatists. It's also a tool of the the socialists because mm -hmm. they can use their regulation uh, to, uh, to 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 uh, not just uh, to. Uh, it, to, to impose more and more control over these big companies. So essentially they become a de facto arm of the state, 
but also uh, they use the advertising networks uh, and the other networks that uh, the corporations have to spread their ideology. So I think the, 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 you know, this, this is why I'm so worried about that, uh, the, those indicators of dynamism, uh, mm-hmm. that, you know, that the, 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 the companies that can come in a, in a proper free market economy can uh, come from nowhere uh, and uh, shake these, uh, the, these corporations are being held back by, by, by regulation, often you know, always well-intentioned regulation, of course, uh, but right. you know, the, 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 the regulations that, that uh, dissuade people from going to IPO that I mentioned earlier, I think are, are a big factor in this. You know, and, and so you know, if, if we want to, to solve this problem, we need to look at not just at the direct regulation of, of, of these corporations, but other regulations which essentially act as, uh, as you put them, the biological inhibitors. Uh, for uh, the, the, the stop the growth of, uh, of, 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 of a new entity. Yeah, I mean, the example I've always used, just because it, it seems to work on, people seem to grasp the point better than a lot, was the Americans with Disabilities Act, right? Which I think was a noble yep. piece of legislation, certainly well-intentioned, probably worthwhile. I mean, I, I think definitely worthwhile. I mean, maybe not in every implementation, you can argue about the outliers and all the rest, but as a general proposition, this society, when it can, where it can, should be as open and as accessible to people with who are who have handicaps or diff- differently abled or whatever we're supposed to call it. And I'm I'm in favor of that. That said, and that's why it's a good example. It's because it's a good piece of reform in in many senses. If you're Coke or Pepsi, you got no problem fully implementing the Americans with Disabilities Act because yep. it means that you're passing on a fraction of a penny of a cost per can to your customers. If you're a smaller regional soda company, and once you have 500 employees, you have to be fully ADA compliant, that means your 500th employee is going to cost you tens or hundreds of millions of dollars. And so it becomes a barrier to entry. And, um, and it's why big corporations tend to be fine with big regulations because they freeze out the innovators that might actually be a threat to their model and uh, allow them with their, their one or two competitors to just carve up market share um, amongst them and actually arguably increase their market share. And the, the point is here not to pass things like the Americans with Disability Act. It's just simply to understand in a very Tom Sowellian way, it's all about trade-offs and that these things come at a cost. And one of the costs is you are going to entrench incumbents further into the system, which is why, in full disclosure, uh, the dispatch is part of Facebook's, you know, fact-checking program. Um, but, uh, you know, it did not shock me at all when Mark Zuckerberg went to Congress and said, we're looking for regulation <laughs> because that will lock in, that has a greater chance of locking in Facebook as an incumbent um, and as I, I don't want to use the word dominant, but the biggest player around, um, and it creates a too big to fail sort of dynamic. And that to me is that to me, whether you think it's the first step towards socialism or just the logical culmination of corporatism, either way, that's bad, or at the very least, we should understand what's not good about it as a matter of public policy. And yet that stuff almost always just gets ignored in the, in the debates about all of this. 
Yeah, well, yes, exactly. And that's one of the reasons why uh, CEI exists, uh, to, to, to draw attention uh, to this sort of thing and, and to, uh, to point out that uh, many regulations have uh, perverse consequences. I mean, the, the great example is, uh, is, is the minimum wage that uh, mm -hmm. keeps, uh, keep, keeps a lot of people un, uh, unemployed and on the welfare uh, state, but at the same time uh, has an adverse effect on employers because they can't, uh, you know, they may need five people, but they can only afford uh, three people to, to do their, uh, to, to, to do the work. And on top of that, you know, Especially when when we're looking at the there's the, the, a very interesting statistic that that, that uh, is that um, medium-sized businesses uh, spend more on regulation than per head than than than, than large businesses or small businesses because uh, the, you know the, there's a sort of ramping up of regulation uh, that that you know. You, when you have two, uh, when you have your first employee, you have, you, there are eight regulations you have to comply with, and so on. The, the, when you hire your second, there are some more, and and, and so on. And uh, even when you have very small workforces, this just uh, uh, ramps up very, very quickly, uh, and to, until it gets to the stage where you actually have to hire somebody uh, to uh, to do all this regulatory work for you, uh, some sort of uh, second office manager. Uh, and essentially what we're saying is that that second office manager is working for the state. They're not working for the government. They're, they're not working for the company. They're working for the state uh, to ensure compliance. So it, it, it's as if you have an apparatchik you know, with, with, within your company. But the, the, and, of course, obviously, you know, you know, large, large businesses have rafts and rafts of these uh, offices in compliance departments, uh, uh, for, for for whatever regulations that that they have to deal with, you know, so, so that when we think about these the, 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 these companies and these trade-offs, we also should be thinking that 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 they have uh, people there who they wouldn't employ otherwise, who are essentially agents of uh, of the state and making sure that businesses uh, businesses work according to the approved uh, approved manner. And that's another way in which uh, in which innovation uh, gets uh, 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 gets shut off. Um, all right, so we're we're about, just about out of time, um, and um, I'm in violent agreement with you. But um, uh, sort of circling back to the beginning, so you know, you've written this book about the socialist temptation. Um, I think we basically agree that there's something about socialism that pings a certain kind of political sweet tooth, sociological sweet tooth in our brains. Um, uh, what, I mean, I have my theories, but what, you know, one of the most annoying questions you can get on a book tour is, okay, so how do you fix the problem? Um, so how do you fix the problem? <laughs> Well, I, I, I think you know that there. The, I, I fundamentally think that this is a a, a communications challenge, um, yeah, and uh, it's 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 a mm -hmm. difficult communications challenge. But I think it is fundamentally a communications challenge. And, uh, what, one of the things I do is I, I quote uh, uh, Ronald Reagan's Hills, Hillsdale speech from the late seventies, uh, where he f essentially lays out exactly the same problems that that that, that we've been discussing. And uh, he frames it uh, as a communication challenge. I think there are, there are two aspects to this. The first is, you know, when talking 
to uh, to, to people who are attracted uh, by by socialism. Uh, we we really need uh, those of us on the free enterprise side really need to do a lot better at talking the language of values. Uh, you know, we we need to be talking a lot more about how uh, capitalism and the market exchanges uh, are fundamental to, uh, to to producing a a better world and a uh, a, a, a more cooperative world. You know, I, I don't know if you know the work of uh, the Ball State University professor Steve Horvitz, uh, but he is really really good at that. Mm-hmm. And I think we can learn a lot. From uh, f- f- from the way that he he talks about, uh, about, about these things, I think the second thing is you know, that, that you know, w- when people start moving beyond the, uh, the 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 level of values and start talking about well, in a social society we will see X, Y, and Z. That's when I think we we, we need to, to 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 get into actively debating the, the contradictions of socialism. You know, talk about how mm-hmm. uh, you know socialism talks about rights. But it, it only it has a very limited conception of rights. Uh, you know, uh, the, 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 the old Rosa Luxemburg idea that you can only have a right if it is um, uh, if, it, if it addresses some sort of power imbalance. I think uh, you know it, it, it is, is is something that that, that we need to, to hammer on because this is a, this is essentially you know, the debate over free speech at the moment. You have uh, free speech to attack a power imbalance. You do not have free speech to defend. Uh, what's viewed as a power imbalance. So, so, mm-hmm. uh, so, 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 so the the, uh, the 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 contradiction between what most Americans understand as free speech and what socialists understand as free speech uh, is, is made more apparent the the, the the more you dig into it. So, uh, so I think there, there, those are two ways that we can address this communication challenge. Yeah, I mean, I. I'm not sure I entirely agree. I, I agree that it's maybe the only remedy we have in the short term is the communications part of it. So we might as well get that part right. Um, and I think you do a good job of of working on that and should be commended for it. But I, I, I'm of the school that says that the attractiveness, I mean, I don't want to sound like, you know, some Frankfurt school, you know, with Max Horkheimer or something like that. But I do think a lot of these things begin in the family and in childhood. And there is a thing about how, uh, if you feel like if, 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 if that communitarian itch has been sufficiently scratched in your life, you don't look for it in politics, right? If you have a hole in your soul, you really feel like you want to belong to something, you want to be part of something, and you can't find that in the normal parts of your life, you start looking elsewhere for it. It's what you know Nisbet called the quest for community. And, um, and I think that the, the eternal appeal of these isms socialism, not corporatism, oddly, because no one thinks of it in those terms, but nationalism, socialism, communism, all these kinds of things, um, these communitarian things, they work on the fool's gold promise that the government can love you, that you can be part of something that will fill you up inside. And I think 
being part of the avant-garde of the proletariat can do that because you're part of this cadre or being on a political campaign can do that. But the government can't do it for you. And um, and so I think that, you know, we were talking earlier about the importance of institutions in, in Britain. I think if we had our institutional arrangements right, where people felt like they were part of something closer to home in their own communities and their own families, um, they wouldn't be looking to be part of some often just really dumb national fake abstract community or international community or identity politics community, which is got no zestiness to it, they would find it in their bowling league or in their softball league or in their church or their synagogue or in their neighborhood or the 4-H or whatever. But with the decline of those institutions, that hunger for belonging doesn't go away. And we try to find it in all of these isms and it just, it, it's, it's not going to work. But I think long-term we, we either work on the communications part of it, but we also got to work on fixing a lot of these things closer to the ground so that people are just less hungry for this nonsense um, in the first place, if that makes sense. Uh, that, that, that makes absolutely complete sense. I, I think that's a, that, that's a more medium-term policy response uh, to, 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 to socialism. It, um, you know, we have to... Uh, I, 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 I talk about this... Uh, uh, to, towards the end of the book, you know, we have to get to uh, a, a position where um, uh, where civil society is able to take on these responsibilities uh, uh, again, where uh, you, you don't look to to the government for something that an association can provide. Yeah, I, I, so right. uh, you know, I, I think that that the, the, we we very much have to look at uh, education reform. We very much have to look at uh, health sector reform. Uh, but in general, you know, there's a whole bunch of uh, of regulations that, uh, that 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 stop the creation of uh, the sort of mutual aid association uh, that that was uh, prominent in America in in, in the 19th uh, and even the early 20th century. Uh, you know, that uh, that that mutual aid, I think, is uh, is probably going to be the the the, the best bulwark. Against uh, Marxist socialism that that, that 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 we can get, but it's something that we lost quite uh, quite a while ago, mm-hmm. and so yeah, it it would be the the, the the deregulatory program that we need to uh, to, uh, to invest in uh, is going to be uh, broad and deep, and I don't I, at the moment I don't see anybody uh, you know, uh, promoting that sort of uh, level of, uh, of of reform. Uh, but I think it is it absolutely needed and uh, could be the the, uh, uh, the the sparking point for uh, for the next great political entrepreneur in this country. In other words, cheer up for the worst is yet to come. <laughs> Mustn't grumble. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, Ian Murray, the book is uh, The Socialist Temptation, and uh, I highly recommend it to folks. And uh, thanks so much for coming on. It's It's been I would say it's been too long, but this is your first appearance, so I, I apologize for that. Indeed, but uh, uh, let's uh, make sure that I, uh, it, it's not another 10 years. I think. <laughs> <before> we, <come laughs> and, uh, we haven't chatted in a while, so. Yeah. Um, so thanks a bunch. Thanks for coming, and uh, we'll have you on soon, uh, soon enough again. It's been an absolute pleasure, Jonah. Thank you so much. Okay, so Ian has left the place. Um, I meant to actually 
explain that reference to that story, but uh, that I started with uh, in, I believe, went to Oxford and was a big debater at the Oxford Union. And um, I don't know, it was, it was 10, 12 years ago. I can't remember exactly when. It was on the 500th anniversary of ja the Jamestown or the 400th anniversary of the Jamestown colony founding. And they wanted to debate. The Oxford Union invited me and uh, this wonderful man, Peter Rodman, and the third fellow whose name I'm spacing was the was a host of the BBC um, US network. Um, and I'm embarrassed because I know it's going to come to me right after I'm done doing this. And anyway, uh, the proposition was something along the lines of on the 400th anniversary of the founding of Jamestown, be it resolved that uh, America should never have been born. Um, or something along those lines. And it was uh, a great amount of fun to debate this thing. It was um, at the last minute, this notorious guy who was famous for being the last defender of both Stalin and communist North Korea as the preferred means of, of social organization, um, uh, chickened out um, from the debate. And, you know, presumably because he thought he was going to lose. And it just it was always kind of funny to me that, I mean, it's clearly this guy is not exactly uh, allergic to lost causes. <laughs> but um, anyway, uh, Ian helped us enormously because it's a real tough sort of uh, format. And the people we debated was one really talented young Oxford student and then two uh, crackpot, crazy, quasi-jihadist socialist guys. Um, um, including one who was like literally a member of an organization that has ruled a terrorist organization in like 35 countries. Um, and we won. That was the surprising thing. Um, and might not have been able to were it not for Ian's help. So I've always been grateful for that. Anyway, uh, I actually wrote about it for NR years ago. Maybe we can put it in the show notes. Um, anyway, I have, I have very strong views about the socialism stuff because I think, I think the right is really, really, really bad at talking about this stuff and the, the number of people who claim to know, like who, who, who talk with great confidence about how black lives matter is Marxist. And I, and I think it is Marxist in the sense that it comes from that part of the political culture that we call Marxist and all that kind of stuff. But the, the use of Marxist as an adjective among of people who don't, who've never read Marx to describe people who've never read Marx, um, it can get really kind of annoying. And, um, and the, there's a certain aspect, sort of like that, that there's a movie with Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor where like Wilder was deaf and Pryor was blind and they had to communicate with each other. And there's a certain aspect of that where you have, uh, you know, people screaming, you know, you sort of maggot type screaming about socialism and Marxism and you have, and how evil it is. And then you have people who call themselves socialists and Marxists, um, who have no idea and neither side really has much idea of what they're talking about. And, um, and, and the problem with the asymmetry of it is, is that, you know, it's more important that the right convince the spectators that socialism is bad and they're just doing a really bad job of it, I think. And, um, anyway, so I do, I do recommend Ian's book and it's very helpful in this regard. And, um, 
I could nerd out on this for, for, for much longer. I wrote a big piece about socialism for commentary in 2018, which we can put in the show notes as well. And uh, anyway, uh, thanks for your patience. Thanks for your support of the dispatch. You know, by the way, if, if every subscriber of the, uh, of every listener to this podcast would just simply subscribe, would sign up for the dispatch, um, we could more than double our, our paid membership rate. We could hire more people to do more cool stuff. We have really big, huge ambitions for all sorts of things. We're going really well, but if you really like this podcast and you feel like it provides some value in your life and you don't feel like visiting our advertisers and all the rest, and you want to show some solidarity. If you could, if you could sign up for the dispatch as a paid member, that would be really wonderful, and um, and we would really, really appreciate it. And other than that, uh, thanks so much, and I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. Sure.